everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad that you have joined us today. There's a lot happening in Detroit, across the country, and of course around the world. But it's easy to forget that there's also a lot of interesting news coming from outer space. So this hour, we're taking a break from terrestrial news and looking to the stars. First up, a look at NASA funding. President Trump has expressed interest in increasing the budget. And here to tell us why is Michael Wall, a senior writer for Space.com. Michael, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Hi. How are you doing? Good. So let's talk about this increase that the president wants to give to NASA. Uh, it is he wants to increase the budget to $25 billion for the next fiscal year. That's a 12% increase. If Congress approves it, what will that money do? Yeah, um, well, it's, it's pretty heavily geared toward, toward sort of human spaceflight, the, the human spaceflight side of things, as opposed to scientific exploration. And that's kind of what the Trump administration has prioritized all along during its first few years in office, so it's not a big surprise. But, prop, but like a little more than half of the money would sort of directly or or indirectly go toward the effort to put people on the moon in 2024, mm -hmm. which is a huge priority for the Trump administration, and then to sort of use that quest to, to get us ready to take that next giant leap, which is to, to put astronauts on Mars. And that's, that's something NASA has been wanting to do for a long time and is currently trying to achieve like sometime in the 2030s. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the idea of going back to the moon we're, we're 50 years, 51 years from our first venture to, to the moon. And in the interim, we haven't, we haven't seemed to be propelling ourselves toward going back or to going other places. How much of a reversal would this kind of infusion of cash really inspire at, at NASA? And, and what would that reversal look like? It's been a long time since we really talked seriously about this kind of human exploration of space. Yeah, and, and yeah, people, people do often wonder, you know, why, why has it taken us so long to get serious about going back to the moon? And, and like, it's, it's important to, to put the Apollo achievement in the, the proper geopolitical context, I think. It was, it, like, it was an amazing achievement, but it was fueled by, by this, this big-time Cold War space race with the Soviet Union. And it, it, was, it was sort of like the battlefield of a competition to show who was the kind of technologically supreme superpower. And so it was a huge priority for the United States and for national security people to put people on the moon prior to, to, yeah, to the Soviets doing it. It was, it was viewed as like a vital national security concern, which sort of explains why there was this mad rush and why we, we put so much money toward that effort in the Apollo era. And there was a lot of money going toward that effort in the Apollo era. Back, back at the height of that program, like actually NASA was getting about 5% of the entire federal budget. Wow. And that's, that's a huge amount. Now it's about 0.5%. So it was a huge national priority back in the day. And then once, once we got up there and, and won the space race, that sort of momentum faded away. And we just had like, like different national priorities and so on. Um, and so go, going back now, I think there are a lot of reasons for it. I mean, one of the reasons is that there's just been like a drumbeat sort of like Mars is that next frontier. And there, I mean, pretty much everybody in the, the kind of human space like community around the world kind of agrees on that. What they disagree on is like, what's the best way to do it? And mm -hmm. there's a group of people that think going to the moon first is the best way to do it. So we can learn and 
to like how to live in deep space and how to operate far away from Earth, and that we need to use the the sort of moon as this as a stepping stone, basically. And that's that's the sort of strategy that seems to be winning out now. I mean, especially the Trump administration has bought into this like full on. And um, so yeah, that's that's what we're kind of thinking of going back to the moon now. It's not just a flags of footprints race thing, mm-hmm. but we're going back to try to kind of learn all the skills that that we need to to then go on to. Mars, which is what we really want to do. Yeah. So, so if we had a mission to the moon in 2024, for instance, how would that look different than the 1967 uh, Apollo mission to the to or 1969 Apollo mission to the moon? In other words, I, I, that was such a, a flyer. It was such a risk that was being taken with technology and safety and all kinds of things. Uh, essentially hurdling three human beings in a tin can, really, toward yeah. uh, the nearest celestial object. I, I would imagine it would look really different for for somebody in 2024, but but I guess I don't really know what that difference would, would look like. Give me, give me an idea. Yeah, so what, what, what yeah, NASA's trying to do now is to sort of establish like a longer-term presence on the moon, not that there would be like a permanent research base there that always has people in it, but like what they want to do is just kind of set up like some infrastructure. There will be a research outpost in, in sort of lunar orbit. That's what NASA wants to build too. They're, they're, they plan to start building it in, in 2022. And so we, we would have this little like moon orbiting space station basically, and that would be like the jumping off point for for human missions to the lunar surface and also robotic missions to the lunar surface. So like there'd be this infrastructure and then from that little, yeah, from that space station, people would go down and do sorties on the surface and we would, we would gradually build up like a research base on the surface and eventually spend more time there. You know, you wouldn't, wouldn't just be going for a few days on the surface like the Apollo astronauts did. You'd be going down for, for like longer periods and then coming back up to the little space station around the moon and, and taking some time there, it would, it would basically just be like a sort of ramping up of spending time in deep, deep space, like far away from the Earth, doing some science work on the moon and just sort of learning how to live in deep space and, and kind of get along out there. So, yeah, it would, it would not just be go straight to the moon, walk around on the lunar surface for a few days like they did in Apollo. And they, they like did do science during the Apollo missions. Mm-hmm. I don't want to try to poo-poo that, but... That, that was not, like, the main driver. I mean, here, science and exploration and, and sort of learning how to function far from home would, would be the main driver. Hmm. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Michael Wall, senior writer for Space.com, also author of Out There, a book about alien life search that was published in November of 2018. We're talking about NASA and space and the recommitment of the Trump administration to the idea of sending human beings to other celestial objects, first the moon, then perhaps Mars, and who knows what might be next. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call and tell us what your thoughts are on the idea of increasing funding for space exploration. The Trump administration is proposing a $25 billion budget for fiscal year 2021 for NASA. That's a 12% increase over what it has now, and it would make possible some of these things that we're talking about, going back to the moon, planning to go to Mars. Is that money that you think 
is well spent given the other priorities that we have in government spending right now. Um, what do you think uh, should be done instead? It, in other words, if you weren't going to spend that money, would you spend it on infrastructure? Would you spend it on education or the environment? How do you prioritize those things in terms of the way that we spend our public money in this country. Uh, what do you think of humans going back to the moon? Are you somebody who remembers the moon landings in the late 1960s and early 1970s and wanted for that to, to lead to other kinds of exploration uh, by human beings of our, of our uh, celestial neighborhood? Uh, do you remember seeing the first moon landing and being excited about it? And are you interested in seeing us get back there? Uh, or are you ready for a new frontier? Would you rather just go straight to someplace like Mars? As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Um, uh, Michael, I, I want to change gears just a, a little bit. Uh, the, the president has also talked a lot about this thing called Space Force, which it, 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 it's almost hard to say without chuckling. And there's yeah. been a lot of ridicule of of this idea. He seems to take it quite seriously, or at least he's, you know, I mean, maybe maybe he's putting us all on there. I don't know. But, but talk about Space Force and how that fits into both space exploration and the current military that we have. Is there a crossover that makes sense there? Yeah, and he, I mean, he is definitely serious about it. When, when he first raised it like a couple of years ago in the speech, it was sort of in an offhand way. And mm -hmm. he said, well, it would be pretty cool to have a Space Force, that, that, that sort of thing. So that... We, like we didn't know at first that he was serious about it, but he but he is allocating fifteen billion dollars to the space force in this budget. You know, they're like they're getting sixty percent of what NASA's getting, which is a lot of money. And and like it's important to actually stress that you know this is just a budget request. I mean, Congress will have to finalize all these numbers, so these are, these are by far not the final numbers. No, I mean these like these sorts of requests almost never come through in their original form. So that's that's an important caveat to to put out there. Yeah, um, it's kind of hard to talk about the Space Force at, like, at this point because we don't know exactly what it's going to do yet. It hasn't been fully laid out in any kind of like detailed way. Like I think what people might not understand, I guess, is that like a lot of what the Space Force will probably do is already being done now by the U.S. Air Force. Like, I mean, it's not like all of our space assets are unwatched and unguarded up there. You know, that's something that the Air Force has been doing for a long time. So it seems like what the Space Force would mostly be from early indications is a sort of reorganization of what the Air Force is already doing, you know, giving it some more autonomy or giving it some more money. Um, and if, if, like, if that's what it turns out to be, that seems, that seems like a useful thing. I don't think there's going to be people up there cruising around in, in space planes shooting down enemy satellites or anything like that. <laughs> so. <laughs> and, and how does this sort of dovetail with this idea of doubling down on the idea of space exploration. I mean, I, 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 I don't think in the president's mind these things are, are necessarily all that distinct. In other words, this idea of conquering space, I guess, is maybe where these two ideas converge. Yeah, and it, it's, it is interesting, too, because this, yeah, this administration and, and also military officials have been saying for a couple of years now that space is becoming an, an increasingly contested domain. 
we in the United States have kind of taken it for a little bit for, yeah, actually granted for the last like few decades that we've been the preeminent space superpower. And that has been responsible for, for a lot of our success on the battlefield. You know, we have the best spy satellites and, and the best kind of communication satellites and so on. And it's, it's a huge part of our economy, as we all know, you know, I mean, GPS satellites are a huge part of everybody's everyday life. Um, there's just, like there's so much in space that is a that's a huge part of the economy and and like just our day-to-day lives and and what military officials have been saying increasingly over the past few years is that china like in particular like and also russia are starting to really contest our dominance in the space domain they've been testing anti-satellite weapons anti-satellite technology and so what the space force also kind of signals i think is um is a recognition that we need to be more proactive in sort of keeping watch over our space assets, our most our most valuable satellites, our, our most capable satellites, and sort of just being proactive about, well, let's just make sure that there's nothing going on up there, that people are trying to kind of knock out some of some of our our like top spacecraft. Um, it's like not to say that that anything is necessarily imminent in the next few years, but just that some of these other growing powers have have like growing ambitions in space, and we need to keep an eye on that. Hmm. Uh, let's, let's talk a little about the difference in space that uh, private dollars are making today than they were 50, 50 years ago when we were going to the moon. You've got all kinds of people who are also really committed to the idea of better uh, space exploration on the, on the part of human beings, uh, the idea of space leisure tra- travel has come up several times. You've got Elon Musk investing really heavily in the idea of accelerating and growing that sector and making it accessible for for people to go to space. How does that change the conversations about going back to the moon or perhaps going to Mars? Yeah, it's 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 a really big deal if if things kind of continue on their current trajectory. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons Elon Musk actually he he has said repeatedly that he founded SpaceX primarily to help humanity colonize Mars. So this isn't just like a sort of passing fancy for him. He has he's stressed over the years that you know like he he became a billionaire and and has and has continued but like kind of gathering money primarily to spend it on the Mars colonization effort. So this is this is a lifelong dream for him, and he and he's building a giant spaceship and a giant rocket that will help get us there. I mean, hopefully anyway. Um, so yeah, and this is a really this is a real thing, and this is something that's changing space flight in, in a way that we haven't seen before. Because I mean, it used to be dominated by big superpower governments, you know, NASA and like all like all the military agencies and so on. And now you know you're getting these private players with very deep pockets into it um, too. And people might not know that um, the like richest man in the world, Jeff um, Bezos. He, he has his own spaceflight company that he founded about the same time Elon Musk founded SpaceX, and he has similar ambitions. He wants to help get humanity living and working in space, millions of us living and working in space, and he's selling off a billion dollars worth of Amazon stock every year to fund that effort. So there are serious people with serious money getting involved in this, and they are building rockets that are designed to help us get to space, you know, I mean, rockets that that are reusable, so so you can fly them again after you land them. People have probably seen SpaceX rockets landing on Earth or on their ships at sea. It's a pretty awesome sight. Hmm. And that's 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 not just for the GUIS factor. It's so you can reuse them, and it's it's a lot cheaper to do that. And so the so the hope is that like if you can refly rockets, then you can you can slash the cost of spaceflight so much that you can just open up whole new worlds of possibilities. 
And we are starting to see that, you know. I mean, space flight costs have gone down a lot. And with, with the miniaturization of electronics, that keeps going on. So you can build these tiny little satellites that are really capable, and now it costs less to get them up. And so this, this is all sort of feeding into itself, and we're just seeing more and more spacecraft going up and more and more things happening. All of it's pretty exciting, actually. So, so talk about, though, the difference then that could make in, in these current efforts. In other words, the space program in the 60s was about the, the, the cooperation, I guess, between the federal government and, and private contractors. I mean, there were a lot of, of, of private interest and private dollars that were dedicated to developing the technology to get us to the moon in the first place. Today, you've, you've got that operating much more independently from, from government. I mean, in the 1960s, it was the government leading the charge. Now you've got individuals saying that they can, they can do it on their own. Is there a convergence of those two things that we might see now that NASA is being more heavily invested in? Does NASA then reassume the, the, the sort of lead in that conversation and rally these private interests? Or might we see those private interests rallying the government and, and those resources to, to conform to, to, to their trajectory? Yeah, that's, it's, 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 sort of, it's sort of tough to predict how that's all going to work out because I mean, you don't know who's going to take the lead in which sort of area. I mean, NASA is, is like welcoming this trend. You know, they, like they're, they're counting on private spaceflight providers to actually start carrying American astronauts to and from the space station, you know, and that, that's, that's something NASA used to do with the space shuttle, and it, it costs a huge amount of money every time. Um, but they're, they're happy to kind of hand that stuff over to companies such, yeah, such as actually SpaceX, which, which is planning to, to fly its first, its first crewed mission to the space station in a couple of months. Um, so what, like, like what you might see and probably will see is, is sort of NASA depending more and more on private companies to do some of the stuff that's not, that's, that's not incredibly challenging and, not, and, and doesn't take I mean, years of development and sort of billions and billions of dollars, like, like getting people up and down to low Earth orbit, even though that, that is difficult and costs a lot of money. But I mean, if, if they can take that off of NASA's plate, then, then they can focus on, on the tougher stuff, like, like sending astronauts to Mars and setting up a research outpost on Mars to sort of look for life. And I mean, NASA is increasingly looking to the private sector to even help with the moon effort. You know, they're like they're going to hopefully send astronauts down to the moon from that space station around the moon on privately funded landers, privately built landers. Hmm. So they're they're embracing this this sort of rise of the private sector pretty yeah pretty wholeheartedly because they think it'll allow them to concentrate their resources on stuff that like only they can do. And so that's what we're going to see. I think is is like like kind of how this shakes out over the next few years is what, what can the private kind of sector do in, in a capable way, in an efficient way, and NASA is going to allow them to do that and then concentrate on the things that are really, really hard because hmm. that's, that's what NASA does best. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue talking with Michael Wall, senior writer for Space.com, about NASA and exploration. We're going to talk about some of the discoveries that are coming up that make us think a little differently, perhaps, about our place in the universe. And let's get going on the phones. Let us know what you think about this renewed investment in space exploration. Should we go back to the moon? 
Should we be spending money to get to Mars? Do we need to be investing in the idea of getting off of this rock and perhaps getting somewhere else? 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Michael Wall. He is a senior writer for Space.com and author of Out There, a book about alien life search that was published in November of 2018. We're talking about the renewed interest in NASA from the Trump administration, the renewed interest in the idea of going back to the moon and trying to get to Mars and maybe to further destinations in our local solar system or maybe even further than that. Uh, We want to hear from you as well. What do you think about this renewed interest in space exploration 50 years after we landed on the moon for the first time? Is this the right thing? Is this the right time to be making that investment? Uh, What would you think about the idea of humans returning to the moon? Do you remember humans going to the moon for the first time back in 1969. Uh, Call us with your memories of that. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or to Twitter and hashtag us, and we'll try to work your comments into our conversation here. Uh, I want to change the subject just a little bit here, Michael, and talk about Planet X, which... um, Uh, Caltech researchers have found mathematical evidence suggesting that there may be a planet X, another another planet orbiting the sun deep in the solar system. Uh, Talk about what Planet Nine is. Yeah, it's it is a it's like nobody knows if it's there or not. It's it's sort of it's a hypothetical world that there is evidence for based on like the orbits of these like really small objects far away from the sun, they, they have this kind of weird kind of artifact to their orbit. They, they, they sort of cluster together in a way that strongly suggests there's something big out there kind of tugging on them that, 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 that has sort of sculpted them into this orbit. And there are some people who are pretty convinced that, that it's out there and they've done the math and think that this, that, that the so-called planet nine, um, although people who, who think Pluto should still be a planet get kind of mad about that name. So there are other names like Planet Next or Planet <laughs> X, because to a lot of people, Pluto will, will always be Planet 9. And I um, think then they just reclassify Pluto as an actual planet after the mission no, there? there, there no? no, no, there, there have been some high-profile people saying they think it should be a planet. <laughs> I mean, NASA see. Administrator Jim Bridenstine came out and said he thinks it's a real planet. It's, it's, it's like a never-ending debate. Uh, people have strong feelings about it. But, um, but yeah, that's, this this hypothesized planet deep in the outer solar system, and it's really far away. If, like if it's out there, people think it's about maybe five times Earth mass, huh. so like a lot bigger than Earth, and maybe it probably orbits the sun about 500 times farther away from the sun than Earth does. Wow! So that's why, even though it's it's proposed to be big, that's why it's so hard to spot out there because that's really really far away and really, it's really dim. And you you would have to be looking in just the right place with a really powerful telescope to find it because it, it probably takes like twenty thousand years to complete one orbit and and you have no idea where in its orbit where like, it, it is. might be at any one time so sure. it's really hard to find. It's one um, of the it's one of the interesting things about 
about looking out into the into the universe, it's sometimes easier to see things much further away because they're closer to light sources than things that are closer to us but far away from from our sun and not reflecting that light. Yeah, true. It's it's. I mean, we have found alien planets really far away, and people might be wondering, well, well, why why can we see like an alien planet that's like thirty light years away? How do we know it's there? We can't even see something in our own solar system, and that's that's a good point. And part of the reason is, you know, a lot of the way that that we find alien planets is by is by studying their their stars and seeing how they dim over time. And like you can see, if it dims by a certain percent, really slight percent, like point. 5% even or 1% even, and you do the math, you can figure out that a planet crossed its face and blocked a tiny bit of starlight. Or like we can find planets by seeing how they tug on their stars gravitationally and cause little wobbles. So th- those sorts of techniques can, can help you find stuff many, many times farther away than Planet 9 might be. But yeah, I mean, Planet 9 is not going in front of a star, so we can't see it block any light. And yeah, so it's just really hard to find. And, th- and there, like, there are other astronomers who don't necessarily think the case is very good for Planet Nine. Like they think that this sort of clustering of these small objects' orbits is an, is not a real thing. It's just, just it's kind of random chance. Or that these little objects out there are kind of pulling on each other gravitationally and they're sculpting their, their own orbits. Um, yeah, so it's it's still a very active debate, and we, we're not quite sure what's going on with Planet Nine yet. Hmm. Uh, there was an, a question from a caller who could not stay on the line who asks, what's the environmental impact of space or exploration? We're talking a lot in Michigan about whether we have enough space here for rocket waste around the Great Lakes. It's a really different dimension of that discussion, something that wouldn't have been uh, top of mind for for policymakers or or just uh, regular uh, Americans back in the 1960s. H- how might our our discussion about being more environmentally conscious affect efforts to to send people back to the moon or to Mars? Yeah, and that, yeah, and like that is a good question, and and it is something that we need to take into account. You know, some of these bold visions of the future that that. That like people like Elon Musk envision, you know these 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 Mars colonizing craft launching. I mean, I don't know, two or three times a day. There'd just be so many launches around the world in in this future that a lot of people want to to bring about. And it sounds crazy because you know when like when you see like a rocket launch, you see all this exhaust. I mean, most of that is is actually water vapor, but it but it looks like it pollutes a lot. And yeah, I mean, rocket launches do do like pollute individually more than a car or a plane would. But when you stack them up against the sheer volume of cars and, and the airplane travel, especially there's just so many emissions coming from these other sources that, you know, if you're looking for a place to make progress, then it's, it's not going to come from like limiting rocket launches. You know, it's, it's a very low priority thing to kind of cut out if we're looking to, to actually cut greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, let's get to the callers here. Adrena in Southfield. You're up first. What's on your mind? Yeah, I was just um, telling the um, person who answered the phone that I think um, exploring space is a good way to help um, get more people interested in math and science in the U.S. I think we are, as a country, not doing enough to um, to get in front of that the fact that we don't have enough people who go into engineering, math, science, and things like that. So if this um, would generate more money for that type of thing, I think it's important. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great, that's a really great point, Adrena. If you think of all of the things that happened as a result of 
that 60s push to get to the moon, all of the technology that was created, all of the educational benefits of, of having gone and and done that, all of the products even that, that uh, became regular parts of our lives after after that kind of exploration. I mean, you'd have to think that the same things and maybe even more would be possible now. Michael Wall, what do you think of that? Yeah, and that, like I think that's that's a really big aspect of this that doesn't get talked about enough. I mean, if 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 you talk to some of the older engineers now, but with at NASA and and in the private spaceflight community, like I mean, most of them say that they were inspired by by the Apollo program and you know seeing people walk on the moon and stuff. It really, when they were kids, it inspired them to care a lot about math and science and got them on this path toward becoming a scientist or an engineer. And that's a really big thing. And people. I mean, if we do something like that again, something big again, I think it could have a similar effect and it can inspire people all over the world to get more involved in math and science. And having more more smart people who are doing things in math and science is a good thing. And, and yeah, I mean, you're right, too, about the, the sort of return of investment in space funding. People, people look at, like, NASA's budget and think that you're taking $25 billion and just launching it into space, <laughs> um, and it disappears. But, you know, that's money that is spent here on Earth. And there have been a lot of studies over the years that have found, like, I mean, between five and ten times more money is actually generated from NASA funding than we put into it. So Mm -hmm. the return on investment for for the NASA budget is about ten to one, I mean, based on what what products come back down to Earth after the technology development and so on. And all you have to do is look at, like, GPS satellites, communication satellites. That's not directly NASA work, but a lot of it comes from from NASA tech, and it's, it's, it's space funding over the years that has that has helped create this, I don't know, trillion-dollar global economy. Hmm. Adrena, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Owen in Gross Point Park. Owen, welcome to the Hi, show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Sure. Um, just wanted to expand on what Adrena had said uh, in that um, you know, Kennedy, in his rice speech back in the early 60s, early in his presidency, had challenged uh, the United States, the citizens, to unify and uh, collectively pursue putting a man on the moon by the end of the decade. And in doing so, um, you know, succeeded in, in funneling a lot of talent and expertise, uh, man and material, uh, you know, in achieving that. And I think, you know, seeing what Musk is doing uh, and, and others um, is certainly exciting, but I think that um, you know, if there were ever a time that a con- you know, our country could use a, a boost in unification, um, mm. you know, this is something I feel like we could all uh, you know, get behind in, in, um, yeah. in, in, in giving us uh, direction through the next few decades. Yeah, oh, and that's a really, that's a really interesting point. Uh, Michael Wald, uh, talk about... Donald Trump as modern day JFK, perhaps saying, hey, we're going to do this and we're going to do it because we can and because it will teach us things. And be, as he said, we're not doing these things because we're easy. We're doing those things because they're hard. I mean, Donald Trump is a very different figure, of course, than uh, than John Kennedy. But there is sort of an echo here of that kind of challenge, I guess, to the nation. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that this is a good point, too, and that, I mean, space is pretty, I mean, it's not a very partisan issue. I mean, people people have arguments about what's the best way to spend space money, you know, should we spend more of it on, on human spaceflight and doing human exploration, or should we have more money going to the robotic missions looking for signs of, of, of like, of alien life, and that's more cost-effective, and so on. These are the sorts of arguments people have about space funding, not like... I mean, most people will agree that exploring space is important for a lot of different reasons, whether you're a Republican or you're a Democrat or, or like whatever your sort of leanings may be. So, so I agree that um, this is one area where our our country, which which seems to be increasingly fractured, can actually come together and and agree that this is an important thing to do, and it's an exciting thing to do, and an inspiring thing to do. And like we can argue about the details, but we can actually come together on the fact that this is cool, cool and exciting stuff. And like the United States should should take the lead in doing a lot of this stuff for a variety of reasons, and not yeah, not just national security reasons, but also because we've always been a nation of explorers, and we we have the technological competence to do a lot of this stuff that would advance like a lot of people's lives around the world. But yeah, I mean, I think it does have a lot of like potential to sort of bring people together. Okay, Michael Wall, senior writer at Space.com and author of Out There, a book about alien life search that was published in November 2018. It's really great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks for being with us. No worries. Thanks for having me. All right, up next, we're going to talk about some of the big space discoveries happening right here in Detroit with Wayne State University astrophysicist Edward Cackett. Stay with us on Detroit Today. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm glad you've joined us. We're talking about all the new and interesting discoveries that are happening in space right now and what might be on the horizon in the coming years. Now, we want to focus on the research being done right here in Detroit. Did you know that Wayne State University has its own dark sky observatory in New Mexico? Researchers right here in Detroit are using data from that observatory to make big discoveries about our universe. One of them joins me now. Edward Cackett is an astrophysicist at Wayne State University. Edward, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on. Yes. So tell us about the Zawada Observatory in New Mexico and how it wound up in the hands of Wayne State University. Yes. So when you try and do astronomy from Detroit... You have a big problem, right? <laughs> too many lights. And that's the for about, well, aside from the lights, right? About 80% of the days in the year have more than a quarter of the sky covered by clouds. The clouds, right? Yeah. So you can't even see the stars. <laughs> uh, so if we try and do anything from here, we have a real problem. So the best thing to do is to put a telescope somewhere nice and dark and in the middle of nowhere away from a big city. Uh, and with clear skies, and that leads you to somewhere like Arizona or New Mexico. Yeah. So what's the research that is going on at that observatory? So uh, this is a robotic observatory. We can actually, uh, it controls itself, essentially. We tell it the things to go look at, and it takes the data for us. Uh, and the stuff that I work on is trying to figure out uh, what happens when things fall into supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we do this by 
uh, monitoring the brightness changes as this gas falls in and use some clever techniques to pick out how big this size of this disk of gas as it falls into a black hole. And what is it that we hope to learn from observing that? Yeah, so black holes like this are millions of times the, the mass of our own sun. And we find that every major galaxy in the universe has one of these supermassive black holes at the center. And an incredible thing is that the galaxies seem to know that the black hole is there. And we see these strong correlations between the black hole and the galaxy. So if we learn about how the black hole grows, how things fall into the black hole, it helps us understand better how galaxies form, how galaxies evolve. And that, of course, tells us eventually about how we come about, right? How we form solar systems and right. how everything evolves. Yeah. Uh, the the black holes that exist at the centers of of these galaxies are among the, the biggest mysteries that we have in our universe. We don't really understand why they exist, what they do, or what happens to what falls into them, correct? Yeah. So it's actually a big mystery as to, to why these things are there in the first place, right? We do some simple calculations and uh, you look at the most distant galaxies, they have these black holes. It turns out the amount of time in the universe between when the universe started and when we look to see these black holes is too short for us to grow the black holes from how we know black holes form, which is the explosion of stars at the end of their lifetime. So we still don't really know how they form. So we want to understand that. And then we also want to understand... Uh, uh, exactly what happens to black holes. How do they grow, right? You know, things fall into them. Uh, we can see the material falling into them, but once they pass the event horizon, which is the the point of no return, we actually lose the information, right? <laughs> right. We actually, there's no, nothing can get out from the black hole. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, this work is not just about new discovery. This is also about teaching students. So talk about how common it is for students to be involved in... In this research, yes. Yeah, so it it used to be that uh, we had these two telescopes on the rooftop of the physics building here, and uh, we'd try and schedule nights for students, undergraduate students, to go up and use them, right? And you ended up canceling virtually every single one of them, right? <laughs> and the beauty now is, uh, in our classes, we can the students can schedule observations and they download it the next day or a few days later after they're taken. So. We're now able to use real data from a real telescope in our undergrad classes. Yeah. Uh, and then our graduate students are using it for research projects. So they're actually involved in this, our studies of these supermassive black holes. They're downloading the data, analyzing it, and uh, um, making the discoveries themselves. Yeah. Uh, are students frequently making discoveries, things that uh, other, other observers haven't seen, other researchers haven't, haven't come across? How, how often does that happen? Most of the research that goes on is done by the graduate students rather than the professors, yeah. right? So the professors are so often uh, 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 managing many, so many different things that the graduate students are the, war the workhorses that are actually doing all the exciting stuff. And they often find the coolest things. Uh, and they have a new look on things too, right? They're not uh, limited by... 20 years of, <laughs> of literature that tells them it should be this way, right? They have right. a fresh look on things and can often find new discoveries because of that. Yeah. 
Uh, my guest is Edward Cackett. He is an astrophysicist at Wayne State University, and we're talking about the work that he and others do at Wayne, uh, observing our universe from right here in Detroit. We're also talking about the effect that has on uh, undergraduate and graduate education at Wayne State University. Um, Edward, we've been talking this hour about funding for NASA, and you do a lot of research uh, with NASA. Talk about your work with that organization and your thoughts on the level of commitment and support that NASA is getting right now. So, um, yeah, I, I, I've for many years worked on a lot of uh, data from NASA. So NASA um, has a, an astrophysics division, so they fund the building of telescopes. So uh, virtually everybody knows about the Hubble Space Telescope, right? Uh, but there are many other missions that they support. Uh, I study a lot about X-rays from things falling into black holes. Uh, to be able to study X-rays, you have to go above the Earth's atmosphere because the atmosphere stops X-rays from getting down to the Earth's surface. Um, so uh, they build X-ray satellites and they put them up there and allow us to have X-ray vision of the, on the universe. Um, one of the exciting missions I've been working on for the past few years is called NISA. Mm -hmm. It's the Neutron Star Interior Composition Explorer. And this is a, a washing machine-sized thing that sits on the outside of the International Space Station. Uh, it has a whole bunch of X-ray detectors, uh, and it looks at X-rays from neutron stars and black holes and tries to figure, figure out what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and you know, NASA is doing really well. At, it's really good at building these missions, these exciting things, and doing ex great science with it. So, so one of the things that I think is is difficult for people when when they sit and listen to you describe this work, when people think of NASA, I think they think of uh, you know manned space missions. They yep. think of our journeys to the moon and and the talk about whether we might send human beings out further into into the universe. And it's it's hard, I think, to understand how research like yours connects to that. But it but it does. The things that that you're doing, the things that you're looking at and and researching, really do help us get to other places, right? Yes. Yeah, so NISA, this mission that's on the outside the International Space Station, part of its mission is not just looking at X-rays from these things. It's actually figuring out how can we use X-rays from objects called pulsars to navigate in deep space, right? So uh, they were able to do the first demonstration of using pulsars to figure out exactly where the International Space Station was, right? Huh. So yes, this mission is mostly doing science and astrophysics science, but it actually has applications to things that could be done in the future in terms of navigating spacecraft once you're in deep space and you no longer have an easy connection back to earth or you can use other things right 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 uh what's your sense of how close we are to i guess more adventurous kind of manned space missions i mean uh, 50 years ago we were we were on the moon and going back 50 years later i'm not sure anyone f would would have predicted then that we would be where we are now, where almost nobody goes into space regularly. Yeah, and that's mostly, I think, it's expensive and it's high high risk, right? And you can actually do a lot of the things that a human can do with robots, mm. right? You can look at the success of the rovers that have been sent to Mars, right? Um, 
Rove's a lot more expendable than a human being, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> so, if something goes wrong. <laughs> and so that's typically the way things have gone. Um, it is exciting to send humans to figure out, you know, how do, how do we survive? How do we get to Mars? And, and can we colonize our own solar system? Um, but it has certainly been slow progress in that because of the advancements of robotics and, yeah. and how well you can do with robots. Yeah. So so are we close? Are we close to the idea of going to the, the moon? So going the, push, back? the push the push, from um, the White House and, and has been to... to, to to get people back to Mars. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think there really is a drive to do that. Um, Elon Musk wants to do it. Private mm -hmm. companies are wanting to do this sort of thing, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an exciting it's an exciting thing to try and do. Technologically hard, right? Uh, because you really have to make sure everything's so safe, right? Um, but it's. It, I think we're not that far away. They've built these big rockets that are now capable of lifting... The sorts of things you need to lift off the ground uh, again. They have that capability again. Yeah. Uh, they're developing what you need to be able to keep humans alive on the way there. Uh, so, you know, it's going to happen. I think. Yeah. Uh, it's not. It's not that distant. Yeah. Uh, is there is there a point in your mind to going back to the moon before you go to Mars, or have we done that? I mean, we've we've been to the moon several so, times. Is I there think the idea is there? to go back to the moon first before yeah. going to Mars as a way of uh, uh, testing testing the, everything, right? Mm -hmm. You know, you need to make sure that everything you've built works the way you want it to build to build it, and it's much easier to do a one or two week trip to the moon than it is to do whatever the two year <laughs> round trip years. it is to Mars, three year <laughs> round trip it is to Mars, right? So, right, it's a sensible thing to do. It's a, it's a a logical thing to try and do, right? Yeah, yeah. Even though we've done it before. Right, right. Although that, that was 50 years ago. Yeah. Technology's really different. Technology's very different. A lot of the technology we had then probably wouldn't be applicable now or useful to us now. Yeah. It would be almost like a new journey. Yeah, I mean, your cell phone has many, many times more computing power than they had in the Apollo missions, right? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I was, uh, I've watched that movie First Man from last year. Yeah. Um, uh, I've been watching it on cable and it's an interesting movie for a number of reasons, but one of them is the way it captures how dangerous this was and how much risk they were they were taking yeah. it, it really was extraordinary that more people didn't lose their lives and it's not that nobody did uh, but but that more of them weren't weren't casualties yeah and, and these the first astronauts were really skilled test pilots and they were really doing engineering tests during their flights during the right, flights. <laughs> right. which is kind of remarkable yeah, right. it's not the way we do it's it it's not the way it's done now right, <laughs> right. yeah right uh, we, we were talking earlier about planet 9 and this this distant object that they think they have figured out they actually exist and and the possibility that it might be a baseball sized black hole in the far reaches of our solar system first I, I would love for you to explain how that could even be possible uh, but but also as someone who studies black holes what do you think about that so and I think the idea of it being a baseball sized black hole uh, is based on the fact that we think there's something there that has the gravity that's you know, that's uh, causing some of these orbits of the objects out there to, to be a little look a little weird, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and people have searched for this and looked for light, and they can't find anything, right? So then you're left to say, well, 
maybe it's something that's black and the obvious thing is to say it's a black hole um and to make it something that then doesn't um pull all the comets to it right, <laughs> right? and swallow right. up all the comets right you're left saying well i have to make this thing super tiny right uh which is how they, they come up with this idea of it being a baseball sized black hole now how you form something like that is not trivial why it should just be sitting in the outside of the solar system doesn't make a lot of clear. sense it doesn't right? make a lot of sense so i don't it's hard to I, I'm, I'm not a solar system specialist but I, as a black hole specialist i find it hard to, to, to sort of understand it really yeah I, I also remember from my college days in the very few science courses that i took reading about this uh, this theory that the, our sun has a, a a twin some somewhere that is so faint that we don't really see it as a close star that it seems much further I mean, maybe this black hole could be something like that. In other words, that the, the, there are some unexplained gravitational influences in our solar system, and and it, it, whether it's a star or a black hole, I don't know. Is is there is there much is there much difference? Well, we know that at the outside part of the solar system, there's a, a thousands, hundreds of thousands of icy, rocky objects out there. Those things aren't emitting light, right? The only way we see them is when they reflect light from the sun. From something else, sure. Uh, and so there are plenty of things out there that could potentially ha have gravity that could be doing something like this. Yeah. Uh, it's a case of just tracking it down, right? right? And these things are super faint because they're really, you know, we're talking about things that are tens of meters across maybe, right? Um so they're, they're too small, to they're, see, faint. Right? they're not emitting much light, yeah. so they, it's tough to find them. Yeah. And it seems like, I mean, this is in the far reaches of our solar system, but I don't know, that's closer than going to another star. That's super nearby, we, actually. When we we're could, talking about, about things, it's really close. Yeah, we could maybe get there and, and take a look for ourselves. Yeah, I mean, so the, the Voyager missions that uh, were launched in the 70s, mm -hmm. right, they mm -hmm. have now... Uh, gotten further than this right they're out and they've passed what's called the heliopause which is the uh, outer extent of the sun's influence mm -hmm. essentially right mm -hmm. um and they're out there now you know so we can get things out there it just takes a long time right you know i don't know whether we want to wait 40 years yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's right. okay edward kakak astrophysicist at wayne state university it was really great to have you here with us on detroit today great to be here thanks for having me all right, that's going to do it for this week. I will be back on Monday, and we're going to talk about the local preparations and effects of the growing spread of coronavirus. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again next week. <laughs>